You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise. You're a very good observer, Cole. We have a very advanced program, something very different. An opportunity to reduce your sentence considerably. And possibly play an important role in returning the human race to the surface of the Earth. No license, no prints, no warrants. But he took on five cops like he was just into the eyeballs. What year is this? What year do you think it is? 1996. That's the future, James. Do you think you're living in the future? I'm simply trying to gather information to help the people in the present trace the path of the virus. We're not in the present now. This is a place for crazy people. I'm not saying you're not mentally ill. For all I know, you're <laughs> crazy as a loon. The army of the 12 monkeys, they're the ones that spread the virus. Monkeys. We've been living in a meticulously constructed fantasy world, and that world is starting to disintegrate. You haven't become addicted to that dying world? No, sir. He needs help. I think I'm crazy when people start dying next month. I don't belong here. You're here because of the system. I know some things that you don't know. Yes, my son. You sent me to the wrong year. You're certain of that? Science ain't an exact science. You had a bullet from World War One in your leg, James. How did it get there? I don't know. You're a trained psychiatrist. You know the difference between what's real and what's not. You said that I had delusions. You said you could explain. I'm trying to. I want the future to be unknown. I can help you. Get you out. want to do my part to get us back on top in charge of the planet welcome to the projection booth i'm your host mike white joining me once again is mr jedediah airs i love the air here such wonderful clean air and also along for the ride this week is Mr. Tony Black. I am insane, and you are my insanity. This week we are discussing the 1990 film from director Terry Gilliam, 12 Monkeys, the 12th in the Monkey series, which everyone thought it ended in 11 Monkeys back in 1962. The film is an homage to Chris Marker's photo novel La Jetée by way of David Webb and Janet Peoples. The film stars Bruce Willis as James Cole, a man from our future who may or may not travel to our present in order to save his world. Now, we're going to be getting into spoilers on this episode, especially as the end of the movie is kind of introduced nearly at the same time as the opening of the movie. So if you've not seen 12 Monkeys and it's not necessarily to see the other 11 films, then go ahead, turn it off and come on back when you're done. We will still be here. So I have to ask you, Jed, when was the first time you saw 12 Monkeys and what did you think? I saw it a couple of times theatrically on its first release. Uh, I was a big Terry Gilliam fan, uh, and it was the first time, and I was, uh, I was like almost 20. So it was the first time I was seeing one of his films understanding who he was. You know, I'd seen a couple of others early, and, uh, but it took me a few years in my teenage years to put together that these movies I liked were all by the, the same guy. And so 12 Monkeys came out. I was I was really excited about it. And, and I I loved it. I went back and saw it uh, at least one more time. And um, uh, I bought it when it came out on VHS. <laughs> I 
many times since. And how about you, Tony? I'm the complete opposite <laughs> to Chad because I saw it for the first time about two days ago. Uh, it's, it's, oh, uh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's always been one of those films that I've seen and I've seen clips of. And I, I'm a big fan of time travel movies, Terry Gilliam, all these things. And I just never got around to it. I remember it coming out when it was at the movies. I was about 13 when it came out. And uh, all, all these years and when I saw you were covering it, I was like, this is a perfect opportunity for me to get into this. So yeah, I'm I'm a newbie. I'm a 12 Monkeys newbie, definitely. It wasn't what I was expecting, which is always the case with, I should know better now, which is always the case with Terry Gilliam. I go in expecting one thing and I get something else. And usually it's for the best, really. Yeah, I thought it was really absurdist and eccentric and got some really interesting fatalistic ideas and yeah I, I thought it was i thought it was excellent really good i also saw this one theatrically and i want to say i might have seen it a couple times theatrically and it was funny because so i know right at the beginning there's the title card or the the credit of inspired by le jeté by chris marker but i don't know if i just wasn't paying attention or what was going on but i'd seen le jeté when i was in college in film school and i loved it and i just thought the whole idea of using primarily still images to tell a story of a, on a moving picture was so good in the way that they did the montage, the way that he used sound, all of those things. I was a little obsessed with the movie, but it was one of those things where I probably could have tracked it down on VHS at that point, but was unable to. You know, it wasn't like today where you can just go into YouTube and type it in and be able to watch a really beautiful version of it. So I'm watching 12 Monkeys, and when the end of the film happens, I suddenly go, oh, this is like that French film that I really like a lot. <laughs> I felt like such an idiot. But I was like, okay, that's great. I love the way that they worked that idea into this film. And really, this is kind of a somewhat of a retelling of Le Jeté, but it is done in a really different way and a really Gilliam-esque way, which is funny because at this point in his career, Gilliam says that he was a director for hire which is a weird thing to do because he was coming off of, I think it was four years prior to this coming out. The Fisher King was from what I remember, a very big success for him. And a lot of people were talking about that movie. I remember, I'm pretty sure it won a couple Oscars. I think Mercedes rule, whatever happened to Mercedes rule other than the, the, my big fat Greek wedding films, but she won an Oscar. I mean, it really put, this was one of those things that cemented Robin Williams as a dramatic actor and Jeff Bridges, who some people kind of short shrifted before they said, Oh yeah, he's great as well. And so this movie, even though it wasn't necessarily supposed to be Gilliam esque, when they brought him to the picture, he brought that visual style to it and really made the David Webb and Janet Peoples script um, his own, even though he tried to be as respectful to their script as possible from what he says. So I was blown away by this movie. We'll talk about the TV show in a little bit. Not so much with the TV show, but definitely still with this movie. And it's one of those that I will still go back to this film and find a lot of enjoyable things and still find nice little visual touches to it. Even how many years on this movie's been out and it still delivers. Yeah, it's ridiculous to think that this wasn't, uh, didn't originate with, with Gilliam because both it and 
Fisher King, I think, are such Gilliam-esque pictures. They just seem made for him, and that they're what a couple of the only pictures in his filmography that he didn't write is is kind of mind-blowing to me. Yeah, when you look at things in the Fisher King, like the the Dark Knight that is chasing him, I'm that looks right out of something like Jabberwocky. And you're like, okay, yeah, this makes total sense that this is a Terry Gilliam film. Or you look at something like this movie, and you see the the weird kind of future that looks very steampunky. Everything is based on 1995, 96 technology, even though it's in the future. But we know that the world has kind of stopped in 1996, early 97. So all of the things in the future have this feel of the present or even the past. So you see, you know, it's the thing that they keep bringing up on the the making of, of the film, the hamster factor. Like we see all of these machines and all this stuff going on and Bruce Willis taking his own blood. And then there's a hamster and a wheel in the middle of the frame. And it's like, okay, yeah, it, it there, it's still being powered by, the hamster on the wheel and which is always my joke like when the internet is running slow at work or at home it's like somebody forgot to feed the hamster so it's like we're still dealing with that kind of stuff it doesn't feel though particularly like any any other kind of depiction of the future that's the thing it really does you know we talk about gilliam-esque it really does feel like he added i mean he talks about things like the um the eyeball that watches Bruce Willis when he's been interrogated by the scientists of the future. And yeah, that's something that came out of just wanting this, you know, piece of abstract sort of surveillance, just glaring at him and this kind of thing. And that you don't see that in a lot of other, you know, futuristic in inverted commas sci-fi, you know, when you look at a lot of sci-fi is set in the future that was made in the nineties, it feels quite generically sleek. Just the kind the kind of world that we probably won't get to in a hurry, but this one, just is indefinably strange, but, but definably strange because it is Gilliam-esque. It does feel like, you know, I kept thinking of Brazil when I watched this, even though they're not the same movie. There are a lot of sort of that those distinct touches about what kind of world he's creating. He blends those uh, those really far out scientific advances like time travel or, or uh, sophisticated surveillance, but they they look like junk. They look like they're pieced mm. together, you know, whether it's Brazil or 12 Monkeys or, you know, they just they look like they're held together with uh, masking tape and old masking tape at that. It's that eyeball also appears in uh, in Brazil, uh, you know, when Kim Greist is, is trying to uh, get information from the, the minister. It, it keeps getting in her face and she finally swats it away. But, uh, yeah, it's very it's not not sleek at all. None of his stuff ever is, but but his futuristic stuff looks just as as cluttered and messy as his uh, you know medieval stuff. You know, I often talk about the dirty future or dirty outer space. You know, it's like the difference between two thousand one and say like a Star Wars or a Dark Star, where it's the whole idea of are you living in that very uh, sterile world of 2001 or are you living in a lived in world like a I don't know a silent running or something and this feels like that that dirty outer space but it's the dirty future which to your guys's point we don't necessarily see you know, when we picture the future it's almost always the very sterile we have come to this point now where 
you think about like the futuristic control room in Minority Report or something where everything is, you know, really buttoned down and, you know, flashing lights everywhere. And with this, you still feel like there's light bulbs and not necessarily neon or fluorescence. It's just regular incandescent light or maybe even candles at this point. I think a lot of it has to do with the set design in terms of the fact that he was finding locations he wasn't making locations to fit the script he was taking the script finding locations to film in and then morphing those around everything else he talks about that in the commentary you know how he enjoys going and finding these unique you know whether it's a big wet abandoned warehouse or something like that and that it doesn't all quite fit together properly and i think that's how he manages to create in 12 monkeys this very strange uniquely off kilter kind of future because he's not making something he's not setting a bunch of people to create okay create a future world and most people will think of those you know very sterile environments in this case he's morphing a unique location around what they're filming the first time i saw this film and probably the first few times that i saw this film i completely bought that this is a time travel movie and then the more that i think about it the more I think maybe this is all inside of his head. And I like that I can believe both without having to come down on one side or the other and say, yes, 100%, this is a time travel movie, or yes, 100%, this is the ravings of a lunatic mind. So it's nice that there is that ambiguity, and you can have those ties from one set of the 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 quote-unquote future to the quote-unquote present and just go back and forth and say yeah yeah i can see that like oh yeah there's the stuffed bear well that was in the the future part or oh yeah he's wearing the woman's see-through raincoat and that feels very much like the quote-unquote space suit that he's wearing when he goes out on the the surface world so the, the you know or even that one of the first times we see Bruce Willis is James Cole. He's in this kind of Foucault prison where the whole area is exposed and it feels very much like what we'll see later on in some of the cells that they're holding him in. So it's, you know, very, uh, it's nice that there are those nods from one to the other without kind of jamming it home and saying, yes, for sure, this is this way or no, for sure, this was this way. It's nice that there's that ambiguity. I think we could probably get into it later, uh, comparing it to other uh, films, but uh, but I would say that it shares that with David Peoples' uh, um, uh, Blade Runner script, where they get into the whole. You know, people still argue even after the sequel came out: is 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 Deckard a replicant? Is he not? Is it? Um, and and it's and like like Blade Runner, uh, those questions are interesting, but it's not. It, it's enough that you you're asking them it's your interpretation of it works regardless i think uh of where you come down on either issue uh whether you're uh think this is all in uh all in bruce willis and madeline stowe's head or it's really time travel i think asking the question is interesting and i think that the movie does support both uh both interpretations but the important thing is that you ask and not uh, that you answer it Apparently, though, the title card as well was was put there because when they did test screenings, the audiences weren't quite sure at what point the action was taking place and where some of the characters were. And I think they the producer, Charles Roven, encouraged Terry Gilliam to add that in to add some level of 
context and clarity for the audience going in, as well as that ambiguity as to whether or not James Cole has actually time traveled. I think and Gilliam seems happy, seemed happy with it, with the inclusion of it. But it's it, it does make me wonder, would if you watch the film without the title card for the first time, would you have been confused at any point as to where you were and what was happening? And, and not necessarily in a bad way either. What's nice with that title card that they give you this information and then they almost immediately question it because they're telling you, you know, in the future, this is happening, millions of people die or billions of people die, yada, yada, yada. And then they credit it to a man in a psych ward from 1990. All right. Was this the ravings of a lunatic mind or is this the fact? So it's nice that they already are questioning or making us question what's reality and that so much of this movie deals with dreams and dream logic and that the dreams change throughout this we constantly get the moment of bruce willis's or james cole's dreams of basically the end of his life and those dreams change not only do they change the angles so that we can't necessarily see or not see the people that are in the dreams which is you know of course you don't want to just show your hand right off but then even to see him recasting people inside of the dream with other faces like the david morse character is brad pitt at one point so it's nice that we're also questioning the validity of his own dreams i think it's interesting too uh and i don't know if that's getting too far ahead talking about that that particular sequence where you see brad pitt's face in what we'll see later as as uh, david morse but bruce willis never sees david morse Madeline Stowe never sees Brad Pitt, and I was wondering: Are, are David Morris and Brad Pitt the same character? And if, if if they're crazy, they're just uh, Brad Pitt is is like Bruce Willis's version of that character, and David Morris is is uh, Madeline Stowe's. I I don't know. I that occurred to me recently watching it. Neither one of them ever see the other character. I I hadn't even thought of that. That's really that's yeah, it's a really interesting point. It could be, it couldn't it? I mean, it could be. I suppose the, the only thing that makes me wonder that there, I suppose there is some point of fixed fact about the time traveling and what's happening is the is the World War One photo, and that Catherine sees James Cole in a in a book in a picture that's in World War One. So there is some level of well, he, he must have potentially time traveled at one point. So how much is is real and is happening. But in terms of who is playing what character, that could absolutely be true. I don't think anything contradicts that theory at all. When she's trying to uh, convince other people um, that he's really a time traveler, is uh, you know she no- nobody else ever sees that photograph. She shows it to him. Um, so I think mm. I think it's contained that it could be contained that they're two delusional people. But mm. uh, yeah, I. I don't know. It's it's fun to play with. Brad Pitt changes so much throughout this film. There are three very, very distinct looks for Brad Pitt in this film. So that idea of him being a fluid character like that is really, it's a, yeah, it's kind of blowing my mind. I really like that thought, Chad. Bruce Willis, he has waxed and waned throughout the years. And 
it was nice to see him in this role. He was playing something very different at this point than he was typically doing. I know at one point when he was being James Cole, he actually got called back for reshoots on one of the Die Hard films. So Die Hard was still, you know, one, two, and three are still pretty solid films. I'm not as huge a fan of Die Hard 3 as I am of the other two, and definitely not of 4 or for God's sakes, 5. But this was nice to see him in a very different role. And we've seen him play kind of similar characters after this, and we see him play different you know, aspects of this character uh, past this point. But this was really kind of a, a nice, different way of seeing Bruce Willis. And it was good for him. It was nice to have Madeline Stowe as this very, very solid female character, even though there's that great point, what you were kind of talking about, Jed, where they switch and he becomes or tries to become the rational one and she becomes the crazier one. And I think they can both pull that off very nicely. And Madeline Stowe, I don't think she gets enough credit for being such the calm center of the world in this film for so much of it until she does become hysterical at a few points to the point where my wife last night when we were rewatching this is like would you shut up woman you're just screaming all the time people scream constantly in his movies that's a there's constant madness and and uh, i think he's he, his films are kind of harsh for some audiences uh, because they're so people speak at, at shrill pitches a lot <laughs> She she has that level though, doesn't she, Madeline Stowe? In that she can, there's something in her eyes, like especially especially when she does start to become a little bit unhinged. There's just something in her in her eyes and some something manic about her, which she doesn't always portray. You know, she can portray the standard leading woman, you know, and like the rational psychiatrist. But when she switches, there's 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 something there, and it, it's it's pretty good. You know, it's it's one of those she's one of those actresses I I feel has been a bit forgotten in this day and age. She, and she was quite big back then in the 90s. Yeah, I was a big fan of hers in the 90s. I was I had a big big crush on her. Uh, shortcuts and and especially Blink. I was big in I loved Blink when it came out. So I was excited to see her in this. Yeah, it's one of those things where I keep kind of waiting for something bad to happen where it'll come out that she didn't have that good of a time in the movies, if you know what I'm talking about, like thinking of like a Harvey Weinstein situation. Like I'm waiting for the Madeline Stowe Me Too thing. And I hope that that's not why she's not necessarily as big as she once was, but there are a lot of actresses where it's like, whatever happened to her? She just kind of dropped out. And then it's like, oh, okay, Annabella Sciorra, all right, now I see what's going on. And that's, you know, a really horrible thing that is that we're kind of bringing to light now. But I hope against hope that it's just like, hey, I'm going to take some time off and be with my family, and then I'll come back occasionally for, like, revenge. Or she was apparently even in the 12 Monkeys TV series for one of So, okay, cool. That That's <laughs> <laughs> but you mentioned Bruce Willis earlier as well in that I think this is like I think one of those performances that kickstarted that new phase of his career the one that he's kind of just not done so much anymore in this day and age but the phase of things like you know the sixth sense and unbreakable where you realize you re- people realize that he could do this quiet introspective brooding 
you know, tragic sort of character as opposed to the wisecracking John McClane, which he was known for, and the, act, the traditional action guy, and the, hey, you know, man, that kind of thing. In this case, I think Terry Gilliam was one of the first people to really cotton on to the fact that Bruce Willis actually, it can actually be a really good actor if he's got the right material, you know, and not saying the Die Hard films aren't the right material because, you know, the first three are great. It's a very different kind of performance, but this is a lot more nuanced and tricky. This is a very tricky role and he, he does it so well. And this was the first time I really respected Brad Pitt as an actor. This was a revelation for me because Brad Pitt to this point was just kind of this pretty boy. Like, yeah, he was really fun in Thelma and Louise, but uh, okay. You know, like I wasn't a big, like I got to run out and see a river runs through it kind of thing, you know, and just, he was, he, he's a, a gorgeous, gorgeous man. He still is a gorgeous man. And that he uglied himself up so much in this role and had this manic, manic energy that became like, of course he would play off of that and other things, like especially in fight club. But in this one, it was something we had never seen before. And this was that moment where I was like, Oh shit, this guy can really act. Did you not feel that in seven? Cause seven was the year before, wasn't it? I think, did you, or did you see seven later? I think seven came out the same year. It came out just a couple months ahead of 12. Ah, okay. So, uh, it was, uh, and v- interview with the vampire was the year before. Um, so he, you know, and, and then legends of the fall, I think was shortly on, on the heels of, so it was, uh, it was a bam, bam, bam kind of thing for him. But I, I first saw him just before that, before, I don't know, 93 or 94, I saw A River Runs Through It and California, like, in the same week. Mm. And I thought, this is the same guy. California was fantastic. <laughs> Who the hell is this guy? I was like, he's going to be another Gary Oldman or something, you know, just kind of totally transforming role to role. But, uh, yeah, I was happy to see he was doing something totally different all over again. You know, it's like, he keeps changing. I like it. And he picked some interesting roles. I mean, I won't play down uh, what he did in, say, like, Cool World or Johnny Swade. Cool World is one of those movies where I still can't make my way through it. He was great in True Romance for his for, you know, few minutes mm-hmm. that he was on screen. But, yeah, Seven, Seven was fantastic. I love Seven. He is the emotional heart of that film and you know he's the doubting thomas through so much of it and we've got the wiser you know older detective kind of leading him by the hand i'm still not sure what i think of the whole what's in the box part but um (laughs) i'm not sure it's still something i really enjoy saying all these years later so maybe maybe that speaks to that i actually enjoyed that performance yeah in in this one though he's he is brilliant, and and, and I've, I've always, I've genuinely always been a fan of Brad Pitt. He's one of those actors. I think that, I think he people know that he's good, but I think people forget that, like you say, behind the pretty boy sort of vibe, he has done these incredible performances, you know. And and you mentioned Fight Club. This does feel like a sort of precursor, doesn't it, in a way, to Tyler Durden? It's got that similar, like you said, that similar kind of energy to it. Really, it's got the energy of Tyler Durden, but at the same time, when he was 
the first time we see him, he's introducing Bruce Willis or James Cole to the psych ward and going through and talking about all of these things like, you know, don't play games. The games will get to you and, you know, we're not going to allow to use the telephone because the telephone can carry our craziness. And he just is ranting and raving and it's all great stuff. I was taken back to Apocalypse Now and I'm writing down like, you can't land on fractions. What are you going to do, <laughs> land on an eighth or a quarter? It just had that Dennis Hopper vibe to it so much. It was great, though. I was I really like when he's got that that manic energy going on, and I love that he's cut his own hair in here, and then we'll get that stark contrast when we see him the next time, where he's got the ponytail, and in here he's like in the bathrobe, and the next time we see him, he's in a tuxedo, but he still has that crazy one big eye, and that's the one thing in the audio commentary and in the making of that I really wanted to know about was like how he did the eye and how he was cross-eyed or kind of cross-eyed in the early scenes and he's got that one big eye in the next you know the next time we see him and I'm sure it was all through contacts but it was just it was such a nice touch to just make him look crazy every time we see him you can't look at him and not think he looks crazy I love the council of the scientists that we get and it's nice watching 12 monkeys with the captions on because you get to see every role that these scientists have because there's like a zoographer and a um, biologist and all of these different scientific roles are on that council which we kind of don't necessarily know just watching it as an observer without you know the captions or without having read the script or anything and we get this this group of scientists and it's nice because so many of them are wearing glasses and I was really paying attention to people wearing glasses and when they don't wear glasses or when they take their glasses off when I was watching this again last night. I guess I was in a very Hitchcock mood. I mean, Hitchcock runs throughout this film and we get we we even get scientists who don't wear glasses in one scene who end up wearing them in another scene, especially in the time travel scene. They're all wearing these just mad glasses, and even the one character that we see has glasses almost on top of glasses. And that's a nice visual pull from Le Jeté, which has characters in kind of some wild glasses, though Gilliam said that he hadn't seen Le Jeté before he uh, filmed the film, um, which seems a little hard to believe, but I'll buy it. If he says he hadn't seen it, he hasn't seen it, but there are still pulls from the film which may or may not be conscious, and especially those that idea of the glasses. Not just glasses inside, but glasses underground. Yes. Sunglasses underground. Yeah. I wonder if it's a, a take on the future so bright I gotta wear shades or something. And I love that idea of them sending James Cole out, and you see him you see him go into one area and I'm thinking, okay, this is the area that he's supposed to be in. And then he goes one level above that. And when he goes outside into Philadelphia and we realize that he's in Philadelphia and we realize that the world outside is so different and it's great that they make it such a stark contrast by making it snowing outside. And so we get that, that beautiful world of untrodden snow. That's always the best part of the winter for me up here in Detroit is when it snows that first time and 
there's no you know none of the muck from the cars or anything and you just get the that nice look of the fresh snow and him going out into this world where it seems like no one has been out there for years they mentioned that other people have go out there but he seems to be the best person at this and him collecting the cockroach and the spider and being exposed to that it's such a nice contrast of the beauty of this abandoned philadelphia versus that steampunk world that we talked about with him living underground and just how smelly it is and just you can picture that because like you you alluded to jed when we first signed on he loves the air of 1995-96 and or 1990 and 1996 and we can as he starts to talk about that you start to think yeah it's probably really smelly down in those caverns that he lives in every single day especially when we see that mass of humanity all those people in those cages going on forever and then you start to think it feels like the whole future is just one giant prison because we don't ne- to necessarily see people walking around. Like we see the scientists and they're in their little area. We see the guards and then we just see rows and rows going on forever of people in cages. It's also the idea yeah, like that to- everything's flipped as well and that we're now the animals and that the animals are now on the surface and they've kind of reclaimed the earth in a way. And I think Gilliam's a big animal rights activist and I think he, he wanted to create that kind of parallel that metaphor of you know we are the masters of our own destruction and then at the end it didn't the the virus didn't kill all the animals you know it didn't kill all biological life on earth it just killed us because of our stupidity or our you know recklessness or or that kind of thing and so it's a nice it's a nice um inversion really of that idea and that we've become those (laughs) that smelly bunch of animals in the cages um underground like we used to lock away animals you know when we're in charge and i think it's it's quite obvious in, in a way but it's it's well done the first time he mentions uh loving the beautiful air he's he's in that that shitty baltimore lockup you know chained to the floor it probably smells like hell in there but he's like this smells wonderful i love this air <laughs> he echoes it again when he's you know rolling down the window when they're driving from baltimore to, to philly but uh but yeah the first time he says it, he's he's in that that nasty lockup just drooling all over the place. I really like that the first time they send him back in time is, one, a mistake, that they send him back to the wrong year, so we know that the future definitely isn't perfect, and two, that we don't see the time travel procedure at that point. It's just a fade to black and then fade up on where we are in Baltimore, 1990, and Madeline Stowe at that little lecture that she's at. And so we're introduced to Madeline Stowe rather than staying with him, which is a nice thing because later on, she seems to gain more agency in the film and to the point where there are moments where Bruce Willis just goes away and we stay with her, which is nice. But it's really smart that they don't show the time travel procedure and we just do a fade out, fade back in, and here we are. And then we're reintroduced to him. We don't see him on the outside world at all. We're reintroduced to him still in confinement. You know, the last time we saw him, he was in a chair hoisted up on the wall 20 feet and being questioned by these scientists. Next time we see him, he's locked in a cage again and being questioned by another, for lack of a better term, scientist by Madeline Stowe, you know, asking him all these questions and, 
him with his hands chained to the floor and the drool coming out of his mouth. It's such a a great image, and especially the light coming down on him and him kind of careening his neck. And it's uh, he looks just like, I don't know, like Quasimodo or something, and he's just so happy to be there. This is also where we get the idea of for a while it seems and this isn't necessarily a, a true reading of the film but for a little while it seems that only Madeline Stowe calls him James and that everybody else has other names for him and that's not necessarily true one of the guards calls him James when he introduces him to to Jeffrey Goins the Brad Pitt character so there are Jameses throughout but for the most part she calls him James and then when she calls him Mr. Cole later on he knows that he's on the outs with her but for the most part people call him different things other than james you know the scientists in the future will call him mr cole his uh friend uh jose calls him cole james at one point there's uh jimbo is what the guard tends to call him uh there's of course there's the great voice of the character that uh, is credited as Louis, and we'll talk about Louis going on, which is that disembodied, for the most part, voice, who just always calls him Bob. And even when he tells him, my name's not Bob, he's just like, whatever you say, Bob. So there's all of these different names for him. So again, our character is kind of transitory. We don't necessarily have a pinpoint on who this guy is. And even, you know, Jeffrey Goins calls him, what is it, Jimbo all the time. So there's he doesn't have a name necessarily. Other folks call him Chief and Jack, and you know we always know who they're referring to. But uh, it's it's yeah, he, he's got a lot of a lot of nicknames in the movie. I suppose the idea as well is that it's the question of does he know who he is really? You know, is is, is, he, is he has he always been somebody who has whether he whether he's a time traveler or not has he always been somebody who doesn't really know his own identity and especially given the loop that he goes through, you know, this, this cyclical idea of birth and death, you know, it's that, I suppose it's that question of who, who is he in, in between those two different things, you know, the, the, the moment of his awakening when he sees himself without realizing he sees himself die. So it's, it's again, throwing up that ambiguity about his own mental state, I think. And we get those nice echoes going on in here where, him wearing the plastic woman's raincoat, which again, I guess could be a little bit of a nod to Blade Runner, but him wearing that is also a throwback to what we saw him in in the earlier scene when he's looking around Philadelphia and he's wearing that big prophylactic suit, the, his, for lack of a better <laughs> term, space suit. And so we kind of had that idea, too, of the plastic going on and, and he wants something that's familiar to him possibly and so this is that or is this his interpretation of the earlier suit or is this the suit that he was wearing you know is is his idea of wandering around philadelphia or wherever in a woman's raincoat is that his vision of what he saw earlier where he was in this plastic uh spacesuit walking around and being safe that way so it's nice that we kind of get that and then we also get another echo where we saw him earlier when he comes back from his mission where he collected the cockroach and the spider, where we see him being scrubbed down because they don't want any of the diseases to infect 
the rest of the people underground. And then we get him in this part where we see him being scrubbed down again and being checked for lice. So it's nice. We get those echoes from future to present or future to 1990 in this case. So it's really good that we get those things already happening. I keep wondering, you know, is there only one collection of the spider actually going on? You know, is it when he eats the spider in the metal ward is the beginning of the film, his, his delusion version of, of that event, you know, wandering around in a, in a spacesuit, uh, collecting animals, or is he really just wandering around Philadelphia or Baltimore wearing a trash bag and, and, uh, uh, eating, eating bugs. And I love the TV set as commentator through this. I mean, so much of the images that we get on the television set are, it's almost always cartoons, commercials, or news footage. And I guess we could kind of think that sometimes uh, news is entertainment and it might be cartoonish, but we've got lunacy happening with the cartoons. We've got time travel ha- happening with the cartoons. And then we get that moment of the commercial where we have the animals transforming from one thing to another and we get the bear again on there which we've seen a bear in the future time and then we have this bear on the television set and it's like well was that possibly the bear that he was seeing before and then you also get that recurring theme of the commercial for come to the florida keys where we get santo and johnny's sleepwalk which is a nice name of a of a uh uh, a song for something that has so much to do with dreams, but we have Santo and Johnny sleepwalk as the theme to that. And this whole idea of come to the Florida keys and then keys playing into monkeys. And then the key that Jeffrey gives him to try to escape the mental ward. And we get that same commercial happen in 1996, six years later where uh, it's a radio commercial. And I love that, that, Cole thinks that the commercial is speaking right to him, you know, and it's nice that he can't even have that that idea that the commercial on the radio is not aimed specifically towards him, that he has no distance between advertisements and himself, that he just thinks everything is being aimed right to him. Jeffrey talks about that. It's all there on the TV. Look, listen, Neil, pray. It's your God. It's and 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 Cole fundamentally does not understand commercials but he the real news that comes on he's the one who knows it's bullshit (laughs) the real news comes on suddenly he's the savvy one and has to explain to everybody else you know that ricky newman story that's 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 crap and he even makes a joke the one time he makes a joke is when uh He's driving uh, with Madeline Stowe, and and they're listening to the news, and he and he says, oh, "I just wanted to hear the news. I wanted to hear if they caught me yet." And she looks at him like he's crazy, and he goes, "That's a joke." You know, so he's savvy <laughs> when it comes to the real news. He's like, "No, nah, that's crap." But the the fake stuff on the radio or the the TV, the advertisements and cartoons, he can't really tell. Is that real? Is that is is that really talking to me? I don't know if that's – I'm actually, I haven't read the script. I don't know how much of it is uh, – because that seems very Gilliam-esque to me, too, that that fixation on, on mass media and, and uh, people getting all their information from that or being pacified by, by that. 
And you get that great thing, too, where Jeffrey Goins is telling him, like, you want to watch this show, you have to put in before the show plays that you want to see it because we had one patient here who kept requesting shows that had already played. You can't turn back time. That's crazy. And it's just like, okay, yeah, that's nice that we already have this idea of time travel coming from Goins. And then the the thing that I love the most about 12 Monkeys is that so much of this movie is Bruce Willis and Madeline Stowe seeming to plant seeds at one point that will come back later. So the idea of after Cole it escapes and is caught and they're watching, I don't, I don't know what mental ward would allow this, but they're watching animal um, experimentation footage, like uh, the, the, um, the, the testing for cosmetics, where they're watching that on television, and Bruce Willis is like, maybe they should be wiped out. You know, Maybe we should just kill all the people. <laughs> and, and Jeffrey Goins just latches onto that, like, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. And it's like, well, how much of this is him planting these ideas? Or even later on, when we see uh, six years later, when Madeline is there and she's talking about diseases and plagues and all these things. And it's like, okay, well, how much of that is her giving that idea to then to David Morse, who's in the audience listening to her? And are they the same character? Right, right, exactly. And so maybe it took two things added together for him to come up with his idea. That's the thing that I like the most is that maybe they're to blame for their own future. And especially for Bruce Willis, like if he is this time traveler, maybe he affected the past by coming into it. And he's the cause of his own destruction and of the world's destruction by planting these ideas that he has from the future into the past. Most of the characters, they just done nothing then. <laughs> then nothing would have happened <laughs> you know it's this it is this idea that if they hadn't have tried to affect anything then the world may have been saved but what what i thought was interesting one thing i find i find the most interesting about this film is that james if james cole has traveled back in time he's not sent back to change anything he's sent back to gather information he's sent back to you know find out various bits and pieces as to why it happened so the scientists of the future can actually have you know, the context of, of what the world they've sort of inherited and controlled. It's not one of those stories about, oh, he has to go back and, and change everything and create a better world. Nobody in this world believes that they're going to be saved. You know, it's really, it is really fatalistic. It is, you know, it's not the whole Terminator, there is no fate but what we make kind of thing. This is, well, we're doomed. It's just a question of how does it happen uh, and who who plants the seed? And I, I, that's rare. And maybe that's another Terry Gilliam kind of thing coming in, you know, that maybe a bit more cynical sort of, you know, worldview. But I, that's one of the things I like about it. So many time travel films do that. They, they they try and do the whole let's change the past to affect the future thing. And this doesn't. And I don't really like that about it. Yeah, not only doesn't try to change it as a, as his mission, but the things he does don't seem to change, don't seem to change the future. There There is no, uh, it, it is, it is pretty fatalistic right down to his uh, seeing himself shot in the airport at the end you know uh I, i'm i'm still a little fuzzy on why he why uh, uh john seda uh, uh jose shows up at the airport at the end to tell him to shoot you know if, if he doesn't shoot the guy um that his instructions are to to shoot madeline stowe if they're not trying to prevent the uh the outbreak uh 
why is why is he being told he's got to do this? I, I'm I'm a little fuzzy on that still, but uh, but yeah, it's almost like, well, yeah, you accomplished your mission, but you still got to die. You still have to go meet your destiny in this this way. And uh, uh, Jose being there as well throws up another question as to whether or not he time travels because in World War One, Jose looks like he's he's dead. You know, he looks like he's pretty much he's not getting out of that place, and then he turns up and he's. You know he's okay in the, in 1996. So yeah, there are lots of little air, things that don't quite add up. Uh, that's another great thing about it. It doesn't really give you all the answers, and that that a lot of time travel films try and do that in a way, and this doesn't. You mentioned Tony that you like time travel films. I love time travel films as well. You know, and as I'm writing up the notes for this, I'm just like, oh shit, yeah, we've talked about time travel quite a few times on this podcast. You know, even thinking of like transfers and the whole idea of oh, you send the consciousness back to somebody else and then they go from there, or you know, some of the other ways that we play around with time travel. So you know, I'd love to do an episode on time crimes one of these days. That's one of my favorite time travel films unless you have some insight we don't know how it works so it's it those are the things those philosophical questions that are always fun to ask and then there are moments in this film which kind of continue to muddle things uh in this way like when madeline stowe talks about a guy who showed up 600 years ago and was talking about pestilence and these things it's like well was that another experiment from the future that sent another person back and maybe they really got the timeline wrong because we see that these scientists are not perfect and it's only kind of by chance that Cole ends up in 1996 because this is like a two-part trip that he takes where he is jettisoned to 1918 and then boom he shows up in 1996 so it's the same year but all these different or same month but all these different years apart so we know that the, you know that whole thing that's being held together by masking tape like you said Jed is not a perfect system so that's why we see these glitches going on and him finally showing up is just pretty much by luck or by chance I do think that uh, that it's a fallacy to think that that Jose died in the trenches I mean he looks in rough shape but during Catherine's lecture she talks about him and then says he did he had you know, that they interviewed him. He spoke English. He didn't understand French. It was a weird dialect. Uh, and he didn't, doesn't she say that he just like escaped, uh, the same way, uh, Cole escapes out of the, the locked cell, uh, that he just kind of mysteriously disappeared. I think you might be right. Yeah. I don't think he dies in the trenches, but it, that's, that's one of the things I think it, it's thrown me for such a loop. It was bending my mind a bit and that uh, I was like, hang on, did, did he die oh, uh, by the end? I was like, well, to your point, Tony, that picture of him, he looks really rough when it's kind of him staring glassy eyed into space. It looks like he's dead, but yeah. Then when I think about it, Jed was talking about how he gets interviewed and speaks just English. So it's like, oh, okay. But that's the thing. This isn't what, this is not one of those movies where it's one watch and you get it all. This is definitely a rewatch movie. And, you know, I rewatched it again, listening to the director's commentary with Terry Gilliam and Charles Rowan. And, uh, you know, that's not the same as watching it without that. But it, I picked up various things even when I was watching it and listening to the commentary. So it's it's one of those where it, it's a multi-watch film and you'll pick up different things and you'll be like, oh, OK, that that's not how that works. That works like this. So, oh, I didn't miss that one the first time around. And, I, and that's that's great. It's it is layered like that. Definitely. 
that's probably one of my favorite moments from the director's commentary is when he's talking about the scene in the car. You know, we've alluded to Cole listening to the advertisements and thinking that they're aimed at him. And then the news report about uh, little Ricky, who's quote unquote trapped in the well. And that moment when he is listening to Blueberry Hill and he tears up, you know, Gilliam talks about that on the commentary, that that is probably the most raw that uh, Bruce Willis allowed himself to get during the entire shoot. And that is a magical moment. And that is a moment where you just see like, oh, wow, Bruce Willis can really pull this kind of stuff off. Like by this point, I already knew that Bruce Willis was a good actor. But when I see this scene, I'm just like, wow, he is really just letting it go and is at his most vulnerable and childlike at this moment. And the world for him is such a good place. And it's nice when the scientists try to bring back Blueberry Hill later on and they're trying to you know, give him this gift of looking into this picture and singing for him, even though they're singing over the Sleepwalk song. It's it, that moment in the car. And yeah, all of that scene in the car just really plays out so well. And I love, too, that you know he's there like Never Cry Wolf and talking about the little Ricky thing. And of course, this came out in 95, so my mind goes right to baby Jessica, and I don't know, I don't think that either of you guys were alive enough to maybe remember baby Jessica, who was literally trapped in a well, and they ended up, you know, doing all this stuff and getting her out of there. They didn't send a monkey with a sandwich, though, unfortunately, so that would have been, that would have been pretty awesome. sandwich. But it's funny because then in, what, 2006, there was the Balloon Boy hoax, which, as they're talking about this little boy who gets blown away on a balloon, I immediately think of little Ricky from the movie and think, now that kid's safe, he's in a barn someplace. And then it ended up that that was all just a big hoax. Another instance of uh, the news the news being wrong is the mutilated body in the woods. They're sure that's uh, Dr. Rayleigh, you know. So I, I'm trying to think, is there an instance in the film where the news is, is correct? Like, you know, people are being told what's really going on, or uh, is all that all that wrong? So basically, hashtag fake news. When we go back to when they finally find kind of the 12 monkeys, the army of the 12 monkeys, their headquarters that section and they revisit that location a couple times that section is great because we finally do meet to meet this louis character and who seems to be a fellow time traveler at some moment and then there's also the street preacher who's there and the street preacher it's fantastic he is saying the exact same thing that madeline stowe said in her lecture but him saying it looking the way that he does and standing on a street corner and railing about this makes him crazy but yet it makes her an intellectual so it's pretty great and the street preacher character he looks like he stepped right out of uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. He just has that look to him. He It almost looks like him and Terry Gilliam as the bridge keeper would have like hung out together. That picture of him on the street is pretty much exactly the, the drawing in Dr. Rayleigh's lecture of the guy appearing in the 14th century talking about the pestilence coming. I mean, it's it looks like they just took the still 
of him and did a, a crude pencil sketch of it and, and used that as your slides. Yeah, I think that does lend some credence to him being a time traveler as well. Yeah, when he turns to Cole and he's just like, you, you're one of us. And it's like, okay, <laughs> you're one of us from the future or you're one of us as far as a fellow crazy person? Or you're one of us Cassandras. Yeah, and it's funny that Dr. Rayleigh Madeline Stowe talks about the Cassandra complex and then she ends up being Cassandra. Unless she, she knows the future but also causes it by implanting the idea in David Morse, <laughs> you know, which would be an interesting twist on Cassandra. So. Well, yeah, how many times did Cassandra actually kind of give away the plot to somebody and who said, oh, that sounds like a good idea? Just as an aside, I am constantly at work saying that I feel like Cassandra because there are so many times where I will say, like, okay, if we don't do this, then these bad things are going to happen and just kind of am laying out like what the future is going to be and i will predict okay this isn't going to happen and then these five bad things will occur of it and i'm sorry i'm such a cassandra and i i'm going to sound very elitist at this moment but i wish people understood who cassandra was because people look at me like i'm some sort of like cross-dresser or that's my drag name is cassandra <laughs> because they just don't understand why i keep saying that i feel like cassandra i honestly 12 monkeys is where i first heard of it now i know that if i do become a drag queen that Cassandra something will be my drag name. That's Destiny Mike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just planted the seed right now. It's seeing the other people that are not necessarily the Order of the Twelve Monkeys, but the Order of the FAA, which I'm not sure what FAA is supposed to stand for, but they're like more the, the PETA group. They're not even the PETA group. They're the ones who want to like hand out leaflets and just complain, whereas I think Jeff Goins is more of the PETA group by actually doing demonstrations or cooking up ideas and wanting to do these things. And yeah, Goins again. So we, we have him at one point, we see him in that tuxedo and it seems like he's kind of traded, uh, sold out his friends and now he's all in his dad's pocket. And then he moves from that into the wild eyed, crazy haired activist with the that horrible black stocking cap and everything, he moves into that so easily that it's uh, almost startling to see that. Aside from his tics and things like that, he seems to be the one character straight through who never doubts what he's doing. He may act crazy and things like that, but he hatches a plan and he uh, he carries it out. It takes years and it takes him seeming to kiss his dad's ass for a while. Uh, but apparently he's just uh, trying to get into the inner circle so he can do what he needs to do. So, yeah, he's, he's you know, maybe the, the least crazy of the, the three main characters. And he, he also talks about how when he's in the asylum, he's talking about the system, isn't he? He's talking about how, you know, this, it's the system that's the problem, you know, when when they're locked away, you know, and that, that asylum is is haunted because it's 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 very old-fashioned in a way you know it may be the you know um representative of 1996 you know in technically in the future when 12 monkeys was made by some you know small margin but it is it's like an old-fashioned sanatorium they're all running around you know babbling and left to their own devices but he's talking about how you know the system is the fault why we're here so he he clearly has you know this this ingrained firm belief even though he seems crazy that the system needs destroying. And by doing that, he had, like you say, he has a plan, you know, and he, he has something he wants to fight back against. So it's, it, 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 it's clever on the surface that he's, yeah, he might be the most same character, <laughs> which is really, really well done. 
James Cole comes from such an he's a completely institutionalized human being. He spends all the time either in prison or in hospitals. And I thought it was interesting, the the contrast to who he is. In prison, he seems pretty cogent and, and rational and well-behaved. But in the hospital, trying to make him better is when he gets in fights and, you know, breaks guards' faces and things like that. It's a uh, I, I just thought that was interesting, but the but I think the institutionalization of human beings is another thing that runs straight through Gilliam's mm. work. Goins is the most outwardly crazy, even though he might be, to your point, the most sane of all the people in here. And then David Morse is the most outwardly sane person, just the way that he pitches his voice and is very calm in his delivery of all these things, even though he might be saying the most terrible things about wiping out all of humanity but he is very very calm when he gives his delivery and yet he really is the madman of the story it's a very nice way that they do that and then also to your point from earlier jed the way that we mix up goins and the morse character uh and i feel bad because i just keep calling him david morse even though his character has a name obviously but the the names in this film i mean i can go back to this movie so many years later and i think jeffrey goins james cole no problem on that but when with the other characters like yeah dr Rayleigh, okay but the other characters maybe not so much as far as their character names go but those uh, it's probably also because they say them so many times in the film that i can go back to that and also they're great character names i mean especially jeffrey goins for whatever reason is a great character name but yeah, it's nice that they're mixing those up and that Bruce Willis is kind of trying to figure it. James Cole is trying to figure it out and he's recasting his dreams with this stuff. And even when Madeline Stowe, Dr. Rayleigh shows up in his dream or his memory, then it's like, well, is that how this is or is this not? You know, it kind of reminds me of that weird and I'm trying to remember which movie that that this is from. But they're talking about that moment of when you're in a dream and there's thunder and then you wake up and then there's thunder and it's like well was the thunder in your dream or was the thunder in real life and it's like well was madeline stowe really there the whole time or is he recasting her in this and again kind of making it happen that way yeah that's what i kept thinking all the way through i was like is this really her no, or, or is the or is she connected to him in some other way that we don't realize? Or there's lots of lots of things. It, it's very abstract in the way it's all put together. Obviously, because she has blonde hair as well. So you're like, hang on, she doesn't have blonde hair. So there's a lot. There's a lot to it, and the way it all then connects together is clever in the way it all comes across. So yeah, it's mm, yeah, it does it does throw you a little bit. And that for me is one of the most clever things in the film is that she does have the blonde hair. There's two scenes of them in movie theaters. There's them in the one movie theater where she's attacked and where James beats the guy to death. And that's a, a movie theater that seems to be used as like kind of this nightmare place for homeless people or crazy people who aren't in an institution. And so does that and it speak? looks just like the jail, right? And it kind of, to me, looks like the movie theater that they go into later on and see this Hitchcock marathon that's happening. And that's so nice to me is that we know Chris Marker, the director of Le Jeté, was a huge Hitchcock fan and has written about his love for Hitchcock and about Vertigo. And Vertigo informs Le Jeté, and then both Vertigo and Le Jeté inform 
12 Monkeys. So we get that great moment of them in the theater watching Vertigo, watching the scene where Madeline not Madeline Stowe, but Madeline, the character, the Kim Novak character, is pointing at the rings of the tree and talking about, you know, I was born here, I died here, and you took no notice. And then we go from that to him out in the lobby, and when she turns around and is now suddenly a blonde, it becomes that moment where Madeline from Vertigo walks out of the bathroom and suddenly is scotty's dream woman madeline has returned from the dead you know judy is no longer madeline is now there fully for jimmy stewart and we even pull up the bernard herman score so it's a really nice nod or call to vertigo and suddenly we have this new blonde character she suddenly becomes a hitchcock blonde in that moment she does it's like the film changes it the camera the tilt and and things like that seem like oh we're doing we've stepped into a movie and i i like that the transition is made from uh from them being on the street in philadelphia hiding from the cops and they turn around and and like pull their coats over themselves and then they look up and they're on the all those multiple tv screens that so they're on they they move from that to being in the theater and cole watching them the characters in vertigo and says it's just like us like they see themselves literally on TV and then they go to the movie and see characters that they think that's us. This is what's happening. And just to be really dumb uh, about the vertigo connections, I like that uh, James Stewart and James Cole and Madeline Stowe and Madeline Elster. I'm sure that's why Terry Gilliam cast cast those actors uh, just to be a big nerd about it <laughs> <laughs> well when you talk about how they hide themselves with their coats i immediately thought about jeffrey goins and the first time we see him he has his shirt pulled up over his head so he's not even there he's like this headless apparition and then when the guard finally gets his attention he pulls down the shirt and becomes jeffrey goins so it's a nice kind of nod there as well yeah they make that cartoon sound when he pulled his head out like boing, boing, boing. <laughs> There's a couple of great comic moments that just get me every time, like when they're in the uh, when the the guy is telling him that he's mentally divergent. He's wearing the tuxedo with the bunny slippers, and he he just introduces himself to Cole. He just says, "I'm not really from outer space," <laughs> and Cole just goes, "Oh." <laughs> that part cracks me up every time. I love the physical comedy that happens with uh, the pimp character when when Cole is beating him with the phone and she's calling his name and he keeps like looking over his shoulder and the way that he's like looking over his shoulder but yet beating this guy with the phone and just kind of the, the syncopated rhythm of that happening that's one of the best moments in this movie for me it's just it's hilarious and it's hilarious and it's super violent all at the same time because we've just seen him beat a guy to death in a very similar manner but you know she's there calling to him and the way he just keeps looking over and then he's kind of like chided like oh i'm sorry and um just to be a total nerd i love that there's these connections between this film and then cory mcabee's uh the american astronaut because the guy that plays the pimp who comes in is an actor named joseph mckenna and he is for folks who know the american astronaut he's the 
big guy who first meets Samuel Curtis, the astronaut, the American astronaut of the title, at the door at the series bar, and basically just is there looming over him and threatening him. And then we see him later in a dance contest where he really is a poor dancer and everyone like boos him off the stage. And then the taxi driver that we get later on who tells them about the army of the 12 monkeys releasing all the animals from the zoo. She's Annie golden who was the woman who runs Venus also from the American astronaut. So we have this nice connection of those two actors from one movie to the next. And then I'm pretty sure you were talking Jed about movie geekery and, and that Gilliam doing possibly this, uh, this huge nod to vertigo in that way. And even with the casting, Annie golden playing a taxi driver is a nice nod to, her playing a taxi driver in Milos Forman's hair as well. So that's kind of like all these years later, maybe she's still driving a taxi, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's, I don't know if that was, I'm pretty sure that that was the case why they said, let's, let's cast Annie Golden inside of here. That's wild. I love Corey McBee and the uh, American astronaut. I had not put together that those were the same characters. I had put together that Wallace, the pimp, the other role I knew him recognized him from was uh, Long Kiss Goodnight, which is another amnesia movie. Yeah, he's the one who shows up at Gina Davis's door and tries to kill her uh and and she she flips the flips the tables on him and, and kills him. But uh yeah, he it his whole his whole sequence, he's got some of the best moments. He comes in just that wild outfit with the, the like Hare Krishna tail and Cole says, Is this my delusion. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, this is really happening. <laughs> yeah, and as the movie proceeds, from around this moment on, we just start to get the future and the present just collapsing on each other. You know, all of these things are coming into play. So to the point where Cole has just seen the spray-painted message on the side of the 12 Monkeys uh, headquarters, and then we see her do that spray painting, like maybe not even 10 minutes later. And just as we go along throughout this movie for the rest of it into the third act and to the conclusion, we just get closer and closer between what's in the future and what's in the present, especially you mentioned that phone call and Jose showing up at the end. I mean, he places the phone call and then Jose shows up as a response to it and reenacts the phone call back to him, which we just got a few minutes prior where Madeline Stowe has left a message for the future. And that's the message that we hear way earlier in the film where her voice is distorted. And it's nice that they're like, Oh yeah, it took a lot to piece this message together. So that's why her voice is so distorted. And so we get that, you know, him saying her message back to her. And then Jose says Cole's message back to him just a few minutes later. And he was like the message I just left five minutes ago. And it's like, James, you're dealing with time travelers here. It's, it, it's understandable. And again, sunglasses, we've got, Jose in sunglasses, and then we have Cole in sunglasses, and then when he bites it, when he finally gets shot, which is what we've seen from the very beginning of the movie, so the the loop is closed, as it were, when he's shot, he's also wearing his sunglasses, and then 
Madeline Stowe, Dr. Rayleigh has to take those off to kind of close him out. So yeah, just constantly with this. And then even to think about Jeffrey was wearing glasses when he's hiding and trying to be sane. He's wearing glasses when he's there at his father's lecture. And then it's when he comes in to see Cole, he just whips those glasses right off. And there's even that weird moment. Sorry, I'm going on a little tangent. There's even that weird moment when Christopher Plummer, who surprisingly we haven't even talked about yet at all, but when Christopher Plummer is there giving his lecture, at one point he has these glasses that kind of click open, and that seems to almost be like a punctuation on the scene, is him clicking these glasses open. We never see him put them on. We see him with tape over his eyes later on, but we never see him put on these glasses, even though it's such a nice little way that he ends his line, is clicking those glasses open. Yeah, he looked pretty stylish. I wish I could pull that off. <laughs> People would take it more seriously. He he doesn't have a very big role, does he, Christopher Plummer, while, while we're talking about him? It's it's interesting because you think he's going to be – I think Terry Gilliam says this in the commentary. You th- he, he was cast partly because they wanted someone with some you know gravitas to play Dr. Goins, but also because they wanted to sort of wrong-foot everyone into thinking that, oh, Christopher Plummer, he's obviously got to be the villain, surely. There's got to be a villain here. There's got to be like a clear you know, bad guy. And he wasn't that at all. He doesn't turn out to be, it's not a very big role. And he turns out just to be kind of, you know, victimized by his son. And this son is, it's it's just, it's unusual really, but it's cleverly sort of wrong foot, again, wrong foot you really. I think that father-son thing between uh, Jeffrey and, uh, and Dr. Goines also calls Blade Runner back. They're both about these contentious relationships between amazing scientists and their offspring who rebel against them between uh, Dr. Terrell and, and Roy Batty. And, and also their offspring refer to them as gods. You know, uh, Roy Batty says, uh, he says, what, nothing that the uh, uh, god of biomechanics won't let me into heaven for, and, and quite a thing to meet your maker. And, and Jeffrey Goines, as he's being hauled off, he's like, my father is God, I worship my father. And yeah, they're these these characters who've, you know, obviously made quite an impact on their world, mostly for the best, possibly, but their, uh, yeah, their offspring resent them and hate them and rebel against them. And that, that seems to drive both movies, which is also interesting because those are maybe the only two movies in David Peoples' uh, screenwriting that are uh, adaptations. Uh, you know, one is Philip K. Dick's uh, book, and and the other is is Chris Marker's film. But he he pulls these those themes out of both of them. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. There was a an article I read a long time ago that talked about the similarities, and this always strikes me as strange to say it at face value. But the similarities between Blade Runner and Unforgiven, which was another David Webb Peoples script. And then as I was reading the article, I was just like, oh, wow. Yeah, there are some similarities going on here. And it's a really nice way to do it. I'll see if I can dig that out because it is uh, a really nice piece. And just talking about some of the themes that are in there. And uh, yeah, it's nice that he's kind of exploring these. And, And even to the point of like, Soldier was another one that he wrote. And I know some people don't like Soldier. I really like Soldier. And Soldier, it's a nice, what, what does he call it? He, he calls it like a sidequel to uh, Blade Runner because there are some references to the Tyrell Corporation, if memory serves. And it's nice that they're kind of in that same universe. 
Yeah, and a lot of his uh, movies have to do with, uh, you know, they follow similar changes to, to human bodies or, or, or memory or mutilations uh, happening a lot in, in his stuff. So interesting that those are Blade Runner and 12 Monkeys are, are adaptations, yet they, they seem to fit. I, I don't know of any connections between Chris Marker and Philip K. Dick. I didn't realize that David Webb Peoples is also such a uh, uh, a hotbed of um, Rutger Hauer because Rutger Hauer was in Blade Runner, of course, but then also in The Blood of Heroes and Lady Hawk. So it's like, oh, okay, didn't really think about that. Yeah, it'd be interesting uh, to to know if he'd been suggested for uh, any of the roles in um, in Twelve Monkeys. We are going to take a break, and we're going to play an interview with Dahlia Schweitzer, the author of Going Viral, Zombies, Viruses, and the End of the World. And we'll be back with that after these brief messages. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First... You'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number ten, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your ten free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. It's not easy having a good time, and it's not cheap either. Every week, The Projection Booth brings you a new show, possibly even two, focusing on all genres of cinema. If you've sat through the seven-hour Conan episode, the six-hour Star Wars episode, or even the hour-long Superman episode, you know that Mike and his co-host put forth a lot of work into researching the movies, tracking down the interview subjects, and putting together one of the best podcasts on the internet. Now I'm asking you if you can repay all that hard work by giving back to the projection booth. The show has a Patreon fundraiser at Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash projection booth. You can donate as little as a dollar a month. That's $12 a year. At least 50 great shows and two terrible ones. That's the price of two matinee tickets. Now isn't the projection booth worth it? Once again, that's patreon.com slash projection booth. Donate today. It's the right thing to do.
Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema, and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream, art, indie, genre, cult, and classic movies in the heart of the city. Like a sommelier choosing wine or a DJ mixing a set, we handpick our slate of films, many of which are exclusive to the metro area, the state of Michigan, or the entire Midwest region. Cinema Detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere, including always fresh popcorn, Detroit-made Fago soda, and other locally created treats. Please visit our website, cinemadetroit.org, for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. My name is easy, Dahlia Schweitzer. No middle name. In college, they jokingly referred to me as Dahlia X Schweitzer, but my parents didn't believe in middle names, so that's easy. What do I do is a little more complicated, but I think I'm a writer and a teacher is the sort of uh, the simplest answer. You even make music, from what I understand. I've made music. I used to be a performer. I traveled around Europe. I did a one-woman show that I described as if Dietrichs did disco. I've also been a photographer. Uh, the pop star Pink owns two of my photographs, which is uh, a huge badge of success for me. But yeah, I've, I've worn many hats. What got you interested in writing, in particular writing about pop culture? That always kind of felt like like the other things in my life were more conscious choices, and that just always sort of felt inevitable. I think I've always really loved words, and I know I was an avid reader when I was a kid, and when I was applying to colleges, it was sort of a given that I was going to be an English major, and then I was just looking to see in what I would double major. So I've always liked words, consuming them, and also organizing them in order to figure out thoughts. And I write to make sense of the world, and that's why... Writing about pop culture to me seems the most obvious thing to write about because that's what's in my face all the time and I'm constantly trying to make sense of it, which means that I have a very inefficient writing process because even though I teach writing and I teach my students how to make outlines, I can't really make outlines because I don't know what I'm going to say until after I've written it. So it's kind of like as I'm writing, I figure out whatever it is I'm trying to understand. Well, what was it that inspired you to write about disease and zombies and all this fun stuff and going viral? (laughs) I actually had been interested in the notion of the border of bodies and sort of, you know, where the internal meets the external and then how that can be sort of complicated. Uh, And so, you know, I've always been interested in artists who use their body as a canvas, right? And then there are even artists who will, you know, disfigure the body and, you know, in order to reveal what is inside. And even Cindy Sherman had these great photographs that were meant to sort of reflect the inside of the body, right? And it had these kind of gross organ parts. And it just, I don't know, I think I've always been, for reasons I cannot understand, 
interested in the notion that like our external can be so perfect, but it's also so artificial. And then the inside is so messy, but also so real. So that just very basic kind of concept has interested me for a very long time. And then when I was working on my previous book, which looks at this movie called Office Killer, uh, I started really engaging with the questions of what happens when our bodies cannot protect us, right? When our body fails as a prophylactic, you know, because I think we usually think like, oh, you know, my body can protect me, you know, if there's germs or whatever, it's like it can't get through, but it's like your skin is your largest organ. Things get through all the time. Uh, and I think when AIDS hit is when people realized how weak and vulnerable their immune systems were, you know, and that with AIDS, it was kind of like this double whammy where it was like your body couldn't protect you and your government wasn't going to protect you. And so I just got very interested in how how that was going to impact people's understanding of themselves and each other and interpersonal relationships and all that. And that's really the very basic questions that kind of uh, prompted going viral. How do you go about even starting to research this topic? Again, because I have a very inefficient process and I don't have, you know, neatly organized outlines, I sort of never really know if there's going to be anything there, you know? So I started with those very basic questions, you know, which were kind of how did AIDS impact interpersonal relationships and intimacy? Um, and I know, like, for me, you know, g- growing up in the 80s and 90s, I learned about sex as I learned about AIDS. There was never a period in my life where one was separate from the other. I enjoyed talking about film and television because I feel like they're kind of these really interesting time capsules, right? So it's like you want to see what Americans were thinking about or afraid of, of in the 90s, let's look at movies, let's look at TV shows, let's see what's going on. And so I just started reading about, you know, AIDS and entertainment and all this stuff. And actually, the thing that happened that was really fascinating was I started noticing that all these things were happening in 1995. And that was sort of one of the first kind of indicators that like, maybe there was a pattern here. And I think I, I enjoy looking for patterns, you know, and then kind of figuring out what does that pattern mean? In 1995, you had the movie Outbreak, you had the movie 12 Monkeys, you had this episode of the X-Files called Ephemasculata. It was like you had all these different kinds of narratives that revolved around the notion of viral outbreaks. Uh, and so I kind of, that, that was really a, a kind of pivotal starting point when I was like, okay, so why are all these things happening in 1995? Because it's not like you could say, oh, the success of Outbreak then inspired 12 Monkeys, right? All these things are in production at the same time. So where is this coming from? And then I kind of started digging deeper and that's how things unfolded. Where did that article about the hot zone, where did that fall into this stuff? As I started kind of digging to try to figure out, you know, where this all come from, the, so the, the Hot Zone article came out in 1992. Um, and then the book came out in 1994, if I remember correctly. So it was the success of the Hot Zone. So Crisis in the Hot Zone was the initial article in The New Yorker, for those who don't know, which in, in which Richard Preston talked about this Ebola outbreak that happened in Reston, Virginia. Um, and in the article, he discusses the fact that the, Ebola, the strain of Ebola in the outbreak 
was aerosolized, which means that it's you can catch it from breathing in the air, uh, which luckily Ebola does not operate that way. But this strain, for whatever reason, was more deadly and it was aerosolized. Luckily, it only affected the monkeys in the lab. So after they killed all the monkeys, they were able to kind of squash the outbreak. But it was still, you know, understandably terrifying because he was an Ebola outbreak in Reston, Virginia. And so he wrote about this for The New Yorker in October 92. And it obviously caught a lot of attention. And not only did he get a book deal, which was then the book version of The Hot Zone, which also came out in Bing, 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 1995. It also spawned a movie deal. And then you had Crisis in the Hot Zone, which was going to be the movie, and then you had, which was competing with Outbreak. So Outbreak was like the fictionalized version of the Hot Zone. It was like inspired by that article. So the, that article was in a way patient zero. The Crisis in the Hot Zone movie, did that ever happen? No. And it's actually a really interesting story. Um, it didn't happen. And it's kind of amazing because it was going to have Ridley Scott in it and Jodie Foster. And then it was competing with Outbreak because the studios knew that whichever one made it to theaters first was going to end up being successful. And so they rushed Outbreak into production before they'd even finished the script. And then things started falling apart with Crisis in the Hot Zone. And then it ended up getting scrapped and Outbreak made a fortune. But yeah, so, oh, Robert Redford. Robert Redford was supposed to be in the Crisis in the Hot Zone movie that didn't happen. Oh, so there was only a 30 or 40 year difference between our male lead and our female lead. That's interesting. Sure. No big deal. I remember actually seeing Outbreak in the theater and yeah, it was. Oh, you did? Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. I did not. I think I saw it on VHS. I mean, there's that amazing scene in the movie, there in the movie theater, and you see the virus moving around in the air through this like animated sequence. I think they would have done better had they done some William Castle type theatrics and sprayed the audience with a fine mist once they. Oh my God. Can you imagine the headlines? Well, yeah. So you talk about Ebola and disease and how that kind of sparked the interest, let's say, in disease. But disease had been part of cinema well before that. And I like the way that you use uh, AIDS as one of the big metaphors and the way that that kind of moved into, I hate to say, the way that AIDS moved into popular culture, but it did. Mm -hmm. Sure. I mean, anything that affects on such a grand scale is definitely going to show up in popular culture, either explicitly or implicitly. It's unavoidable. The idea of disease and the way that it spreads and all of these wonderful things also plays into one of the biggest pop culture phenomenons that we've seen for the last, what is it, at least? I mean, zombies have been with us in cinema since almost the beginning of cinema, but especially, you know, 68, okay, with Night of the Living Dead, of course, but for the last 20 years, it's just been burning up the screen. I kind of break down this, what I see as sort of like the three waves of the zombie narrative. Um, and the first one, which, as you said, it sort of neatly ties into the beginning of American film history, is the zombie from Haiti and the voodoo doctor and the kind of the mystical and all that. And then you have the second wave, which is the Romero zombies. And then you have the recent wave, which you're talking about, which really got kickstarted with the Resident Evil video game in 96 and 28 days later in 2002. And that's when you have the zombie fused with our fears of infection. And 
it's interesting because when I first started working on the book, I was like, yeah, I'm not going to get into zombies because that's like a separate, a separate thing. And then as I was doing the research, I was like, the zombies are now the latest incarnation of the outbreak narrative. I have to talk about them because that's where our fears of terrorism and infection have sort of magically fused. I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about 12 Monkeys, because you did mention that as far as that outbreak um, crisis in the hot zone kind of coming in right during that zeitgeist. Mm-hmm. How does the original film kind of compare against the TV show, which now lives in this world, which is a completely different world than we were in in 1995? Well, it's interesting because Terry Metalis, who's the creator of the TV show, his I don't know if you would say specialty, but the thing that kind of gets his juices going is time travel. And so I don't remember the specifics, but I know that when Sci-Fi Network approached him to do the show, they kind of thought to put, like they wanted to do a TV version of 12 Monkeys. um, And they knew that Terry is fantastic with time travel. And so that's what sort of brought everyone together in the same room. The original movie, while of course it has time travel in it, you don't have the sort of the same kind of back and forth, back and forth that you do um, with the TV show. So I think what's interesting about the TV show is the way that they can kind of jump back and forth between many different periods in time. Whereas with the movie, I think it was more of like a simpler conceit where you have, you know, the Bruce Willis character who's sent back in time in order to find out what happened with this man-made virus that wiped out the planet. The original idea is similar, but the TV show, I think, is actually sort of tackled a lot of very different things. And of course, you know, it's also more contemporary in the way that it handles some things purely because it's, you know, being made in the 21st century. Well, how does the 21st century, how are we seeing these outbreak stories being told now as opposed to previously? Is there a inherent difference in just the way that they need to be told to a contemporary audience? Oh, absolutely. Um, and one of the things that I talk about in the book is I discuss the outbreak narrative in terms of being a film cycle as opposed to a film genre. Now, a film genre would be something like, you know, romantic comedy, horror, etc., where you, you have these kind of basic structural characteristics that remain relatively intact over time. So if you're making a romantic comedy in 1945 and then you want to remake it in 1995, you don't have to change the script that much, right? Obviously, you know, you're going to have cards and cell phones, but like the, the core elements of the script can remain intact. Film cycles, on the other hand, must be updated every five to ten years because they're much more keyed into contemporary events. So a film, an outbreak narrative from like 1971, like if you had to, okay, here, an interesting example actually would be the remake of The Andromeda Strain. So you have The Andromeda Strain in 1971, and then they remade it in, I think, 2008 for A&E. It was a miniseries. It's fascinating to look at how they updated and changed the story to make it relevant. Because if you just took that story from 1971 and you recreated it, it wouldn't work. The story would no longer kind of tap into our triggers and red flags and the things that make us excited and all that stuff. The huge differences is in the Andromeda from 1971, the viral outbreak is very localized, right? It's just in the town of Piedmont. 
and the virus comes from outer space uh, and it's some kind of a growth that's like on a rock that falls on the uh, into the town of Piedmont and then it kills the town of Piedmont. But it's all very, very localized. When you have the remake, suddenly it is no longer localized. Now it is spreading. The birds are spreading it. It's threatening the entire planet. Right. So that's just it's a, just complete different in scale. And you can also see that difference play out if you compare outbreak from 95 with contagion from 2011, where it's the shift in scale has gone from the virus travels from point A to point B and it kills people at point B, the end. And in contagion, it's like the virus has traveled the world before we're even 10 minutes into the movie. So I think that's the most pronounced difference. The threats are now understood as global And also, if we're going to attack these threats, we need a global strategy in which to attack them. We we can no longer just have Dustin Hoffman saving the day, right? We need these sort of international networks um, in order to defend us and find a cure. It is interesting that 12 Monkeys is a time travel and an outbreak film. And sometimes I even forget that the outbreak is there. I mean, of course, that's what motivates the time travel. But as far as I mean, David Morris's character is hardly on screen whatsoever. Right. No, it's interesting because I even forgot that it was I could consider it an outbreak narrative. Like it wasn't one of the early ones that kind of jumped to my mind. And then I can't remember something reminded me that it had a virus. And then I went to like, you know, go back and rewatch it and everything. Um, and I was like, oh, yeah, I do have to talk about this. And I think it's interesting because it is an outbreak narrative, but it's also doing it in a very different way. It would have been impossible not to mention it, if that makes sense. And it was interesting because I actually spoke with Janet Peoples, who was uh, David and Janet Peoples wrote the screenplay. And I asked them, you know, where did the threat of the viral outbreak kind of come from? Um, and they said that threat of nuclear holocaust they felt had sort of been overused in movies and so they wanted to do something different and that they felt that biological issues were a more current concern um which is of course the impetus behind outbreak epimasculata etc 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 so it's kind of it was inspired i think by a lot of the same things that inspired the more traditional outbreak narratives it just emerged in this slightly different format Well, speaking of monkeys, I was happily surprised, I guess, when Planet of the Apes, the remake a few years ago, ended up being an outbreak story. And the way that they kind of wrapped that up, the first chapter, showing the way that the disease went around the world, kind of reminded me of the airplane trip that David Morris takes at the end of 12 Monkeys. Oh, I mean, airplane travel is one of those tropes that, again— it's all about recognizing patterns, but so many of these narratives have airplane travel as some kind of a device, either in the very beginning, um, you know, like there's a movie, a TV movie that was called Quiet Killer. It opens with the plane travel. Of course, you have the plane travel in Contagion. You have the plane travel in The Strain. Um, I think there's something really interesting about the plane as seen almost as this like capsule that transmits disease you know from one end of the world to the other well of course the classic film flight of the living dead wow there's a movie called flight of the living dead wow i don't know how i missed that oh wow i'm looking at it right now outbreak on a plane oh my god i don't know how i didn't hear about this see this is the thing and it's like 
I, I never want the book to be finished because you keep discovering things like this and it's just so frustrating that I can't go back and like insert it. When you uh, talk about contagion, one of the things that pops to mind is the idea of who is spreading the disease and how the disease comes to us. And I always found it kind of odd that it comes from the other, the, the Asian influence, and then also the feminine influence. We've had stories of this all the way back to Typhoid Mary and before that. Are women and minorities, are they typically seen or portrayed as being more of the disease bringers in these films? The minorities, 100%. So again, I like to look at these patterns, right? And so one of the things that's interesting is you have this pattern of othering in the outbreak narrative. And once you've established the pattern, it's fascinating to see how it changes, right? So you have an outbreak, for instance, where the threat is the primitive African village, right? And then um, after 9-11, you start getting into the threat is Muslim terrorists, right? And in some, it's literally Al-Qaeda, right, that are using the virus to attack us. And then in 2011, with contagion, you have the, the threat is coming out of Asia, right? So it's it's always this kind of, you know, scary, primitive, dirty, whatever, fill in the blank, other that, um, you know, sterile modern America has to contend with. So that keeps happening over and over again. The condemnation of the woman in contagion, I find really, really fascinating because it's not essential to the plot, right? I mean, it, first of all, you could very easily have had, uh, you know, the Gwyneth Paltrow's character stay home with her son and Matt Damon goes and uh, travels to Asia for business and gets the virus and spreads it. And you would have basically the same movie, except you'd have Gwyneth Paltrow instead of Matt Damon surviving. The choice, first of all, just to have it be Gwyneth Paltrow, who is sent, you know, who is sent on business to Asia and to do this is already an interesting question, right? And the fact that Matt Damon isn't the kid's biological father, but he's still taking care of the kid, like, oh my God, what a saint, right? Well, his wife is, you know, traipsing around the world doing globalization linked work. But then the choice to make her have an affair is also this kind of unnecessary, salacious detail where, again, the movie would have remained intact if she hadn't had that affair. Right. We, and we never even actually we never see her sleeping with the guy. Right. We just hear about it. And I think what's really interesting, and I always tell this to my students, is always pay attention to how you first meet the character, right? Because first impressions are very important. And I think it's really interesting that our first impression of Gwyneth Paltrow's character, Beth, is she's in the airport. She's got this big ring on her finger, right? We can tell that this is not a free woman, right? She's engaged, married, whatever. Um, and she's on the phone casually talking about sex. And she left without saying goodbye. I mean, it's just like, Within the first minute, you think, oh, my God, what a disgusting, immoral person. And that was obviously intentional. Um, and so I find that really interesting because a lot of times in outbreak narratives, it's the woman who saves the day. Um, and we do have strong women in contagion who save the day. But this notion of sort of the globe-trotting blonde who leaves her kid at home with some guy who's not even his dad uh, while she sleeps around of course, she's got to be punished, you know, is a very um, old-fashioned way of, of looking at things. 
Well, any woman who gets a job outside of the home should immediately be punished. Right, of course. And then if she's in a job outside of the outside of the country, right? So she's traveling on business to Asia. I mean, that's just, you know, outrageous. And it's funny, I talk about this uh, in my book, I talk about this health film that was like in the 1930s that talks about a woman spreading disease because rather than being at home with the children, she's gone off shopping. And so she's shopping around town and spreading the disease in her way. And this sort of takes it even one notch further where it's like she has the audacity to travel to other countries for work. Um, and her company is directly responsible for tearing down the trees that contribute to the spiral outbreak, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a very strong critique of globalization and capitalism for sure. Well, then let's talk about race a little bit as well. I mean, the zombie idea has been tied all the way back to, you know, it, it comes from Haiti. Again, we've got the other and then we have people of color. How has that kind of manifested? I mean, obviously, in 1968, with Night of the Living Dead, we actually had an African-American gentleman as the hero. But that's not always necessarily the case, I think. No, it's very rarely the case. I mean, I know The Walking Dead used to get a lot of flack from the fact that it, it was there was like um, sort of this very bitter joke that they could only have a couple african-american um lead actors and so it was kind of like you know one would have to die in order for another one to get added that said you know they do have characters like michonne and etc you know who have sort of uh made the show a bit more diverse but there was definitely a lot of critique leveled at the show for that and i think i mean that it speaks to you know one of the sort of like the whitewashing of hollywood um i mean i in the Andromeda Strain remake, you have Viola Davis. But other than that, I'm hard-pressed to think of an outbreak narrative that has a female African-American lead. Um, I know Contagion has an African-American man, but not an African-American woman. Um, but I mean, I think that's just symptomatic of Hollywood as a whole, which... I feel like it's, you know, I don't know what the percentage is, but it certainly feels like 98% of movies coming out of Hollywood are white. Now, globalization seems to have played directly into the zombie narrative with stuff like World War Z, because other than that, I mean, we generally think of isolated pockets. You know, we think about those people trapped in the house. We think about people trapped on the island of, of England when it comes to um, 28 Days Later. But now with World War Z, it's got the word world right in the title. Are there other ways that we're seeing globalization play out in these zombie narratives as well? To go Even just to go back to 28 Days Later, it ends with the zombies showing up in Paris, I believe. Like you see them kind of coming out and running around the streets of Paris. So even 28 Days Later, you were starting to get this notion that containment is kind of like a pipe dream. But I think, you know, Resident Evil also deals with zombies on a massive scale. But World War Z was unquestionably the first one that, like, you know, was quite so sort of big budget spectacular about it. What are your thoughts about the way that zombies themselves have changed over the years, especially the idea of quick zombies that we see in, like, the Dawn of the Dead remake or in World War Z, where they're almost like ants rather than formerly people? I find it to be a really interesting evolution. 
you're right that speed is definitely at the heart of it, but the, the impact of this speed is complex. So one is that the zombies literally move faster, right? So if you look at, you know, the zombies in like Night of the Living Dead, they're moving practically at like a glacial pace. Whereas if you look at the zombies in, you know, like Zombieland or the Dawn of the Dead remake or something like that, they're basically sprinting. Um, so you have just the accelerated pace. Also, you have the accelerated pace with, with which people become zombies. And I find that really fascinating, too. And, I, and this speaks, I think, to with globalization, we're not sure of exactly where nation state borders are, but we're also not sure of where body barriers are. And so what's interesting about zombies is it used to be that you had to die before you could then come back as a zombie. And now more and more... Either if you die, it takes like three seconds and you come back and you're a zombie. Or we're starting to get these really interesting narratives where like iZombie or the Santa Clarita diet, where the zombie is still very much alive, right? It's almost like you're alive. You just have a couple of these symptoms. Um, and so I find that to be really fascinating. And I think Zombies speak to our fears of losing identity, agency, individuality, etc. Um, and so there's something really interesting going on with narratives like iZombie and Santa Clarita Diet, where the zombie still has basically as much agency as a human being, right? Um, so I think there's there's been a really interesting evolution in sort of what does it mean to be a zombie? I mean, in iZombie, the, the test is a blood pressure monitor, right? Because if you're a zombie, you're going to have incredibly low blood pressure. So that's been the test. Um, whereas if you look at a movie like Not of the Living Dead, you don't even need to do a blood pressure test, but you can just look at them and you can identify, oh, that's a zombie, right? But now with these more recent narratives, you can't always identify who the zombie is. And then The Walking Dead even has a great episode from season one where um, Rick and Glenn put, uh, like, body parts on themselves. Like, they cut open a body and they drape themselves with guts um, so that they can blend into a crowd of zombies in order to get away. And it's kind of amazing that, again, they're, all they do is cover themselves with these organs, and then the zombies accept them as their own. Uh, so I think there are a lot of really interesting questions about what exactly sets us apart from zombies. You're book is fascinating but also frustrating because as i read it i just think of like oh yeah just like this other movie and just like this other movie just like this other movie you could make your book 10 times as big and still not cover everything because it's just such a vast subject it must have been tough to edit yourself very tough and it was one of those things where yeah i could have worked on it for four more years you know so it's like how do I decide when it's even done? And then what's, of course, is crazy is like these more narratives keep getting pumped out. So it's like, you know, do I wait until the latest Resident Evil movie has come out so I can talk about that? Do I talk about Santa Clarita Diet? Do I, I mean, it's like, there's just, there's so many things happening. And even now, like I had to take a break from The Strain and iZombie because it was so frustrating to watch those shows and not be able to talk about them in my book. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a nightmare because it was just, and I'm like an obsessive enough of a person where it's very hard to know when to just say, okay, that's enough. Or it's like, okay, I just, I'm going to put two examples of that thing, even though I can really put 20 examples. So I, I get it. 
how do you actually manage to sell the book? Do you do it as after you've written a few chapters and you know where it's headed? Because you have to put together a book proposal. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. I always wait until I have a few chapters before I put together a proposal for exactly that reason. And also because until I've written a few chapters, I'm not even necessarily sure if there's a book there at all. You know, like sometimes I think like, oh, this is actually a really interesting topic. And then I start working on it. And then I realize it's kind of suited to an article. And that's about all I have to really say. And that's it. It's like, I know that the idea is interesting, but I'm not sure how much juice I can squeeze out of it. Um, and so unfortunately, I always have to wait until I've written, you know, a bunch before I can put together a proposal. Well, it sounds like there could be a going viral two in the works just from all the the depth of uh, entertainment out there. Um, there, a hundred, there definitely is on my, my bucket list is, um, a going viral gone global because one of the choices that I had to make, uh, for the interest of my own sanity was I just focused on American outbreak narratives, uh, because that was just one way to kind of limit the scope a little bit. Uh, but I definitely want to do one where I talk about international outbreak narratives because there's so much more to be said about that. I have to have you back sometime when we do Train to Busan. Sure, sure, totally. My students actually love to talk about that movie because I let them write about it for their papers. Well, when you are writing these things and they are just turning into articles as opposed to full-fledged books, what's your outlet? Where do you publish? Mainly it's academic journals because I figure, uh, you know, if I'm not going to make any money off my writing, at least it will contribute to my, my further career success. So academia prefers to have you publish in what's called peer-reviewed journals. So that's like the Journal of Popular Culture um, or the Quarterly Review of Film and Media, those kinds of things. The difficulty with them is that many times they'll be behind a paywall, so the ordinary individual can't access them. Um, but if there is anything that somebody, one of your listeners, wants to see that they can't access, they can always write to me directly, and I'd be happy to send them a PDF. Do you know what your next book project is going to be? I do, actually, because I'm working on the revisions of it. And it's about private detectives in Los Angeles, in American film, television, and books. So it's looking at basically a narratives where the private detective is based in Los Angeles. So you can look at sort of um, Raymond Chandler type stuff. I talk about uh, Devil in a Blue Dress, LA Confidential, I even talk about Nancy Drew. Um, so just kind of the, the figure of the private detective and the importance of Los Angeles as a setting for the private detective. The book was inspired by the fact that there's so much written about noir and Los Angeles, and there's so little about private detectives and Los Angeles. I was putting together a course about private detectives, and I was like, oh, yeah, there must be a book. And then I was looking and looking and looking, and I was like, wait a second, there isn't a book. Uh, and so it was sort of like by default, I was like, OK, just to fill this void, I'll write this book. Uh, but it, it basically talks about, um, you know, the significance of Los Angeles as place. And then it talks about the evolution of the private detective story. And then it talks about the private detective as, you know, the, the kind of stereotypical white man. And then what happens when the, the private detective is African-American? What happens when the private detective is a woman? And what happens when the private detective and that's sort of how the book is organized. Dolly, is there a good place for people to keep up with you and your projects? Absolutely. This is the day of the internet, right? So 
Um, this is Dahlia.com is my website. Um, they can find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash who is Dahlia. And then they can also find me on Twitter and Instagram and blah, 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 everything, everything that's like ephemeral and social. I try to represent, except I can't do Snapchat. No, no. <laughs> it's Snapchat. It's just, that's, it's one bridge too far. I had it on my phone for like half an hour. And then I was like, I just can't, I can't do this. This has to go. So I'm maxed out. back and we were talking about 12 monkeys so i'm curious guys have either of you watched the tv show i haven't yet i I plan to isn't it like like three or four seasons now it's been going for quite a while i think surprisingly long yeah i think the fourth and final season is is about to air i tried to watch it uh i I got it the first season uh when i knew we'd be talking about 12 monkeys and i I watched the first couple episodes, and it was yeah, it may be a fine show. It seemed so different than the movie uh, that it didn't seem worth me continuing to watch it for the sake of uh, this discussion. I mean, there, there's so many basic differences uh, between the two. So, uh, have you seen it, Mike? I tried watching the show, and I made it through maybe about eight episodes or something. I made it through an, uh, an incredibly long time compared to what I thought I would make it through. Cause I'm not a fan of the lead actor whose name I can't remember, but he was, uh, well, he was kind of a shit as pyro in those X-Men films. And I just had a real problem with him. Uh, yeah, just not being a nicer guy in those movies, but actually he's just, he's a little enigmatic as Cole. I feel that I got to know Cole a little bit more than this guy. And, yeah, they do the gender swap of Jeffrey Goines and Tom Noonan's in there, so I thought I would like that. And I stuck with it for a while, but then there was just one episode where I suddenly lost the thread. And I was like, I don't know if that was my fault or the the filmmaker's fault or what was happening here, but I've lost the thread, and now I don't know what the hell's going on, and I don't really care to figure it out. So I was just very, very meh about the whole thing. It seems yeah, like a like really said, strange uh, film to do a TV series on, though. I mean, and even even though it has a, you know, a time travel hook and you can you can play a sort of time travel story, it's not the. Mo- I mean, ha- t- adapting something like Terry Gilliam, it's unless you're a very very sort of specific you know auteur for television. I think it's a very strange choice. You know, they could, they could have adapted all kinds of other science fiction time, tra- time travel movies, but 12 Monkeys, I don't see how you could replicate this movie in the same way on the small screen. Yeah, I don't think they were interested in it. I wonder if they had a, an original script that they couldn't figure out an angle to sell, and they said, hey, what if we call it 12 Monkeys? Because mm. it's uh, 
I mean, there's nothing, at least in those first couple episodes, there's nothing about mental illness. There's no, I mean, it takes all of about, you know, 10 minutes. I think it's maybe the first commercial break uh, before uh, the doctor believes he's a, a time traveler, you know, is convinced. You know, there's all, all kinds of weird stuff. He is changing the future. It's a lot of stuff that's just specifically not the movie. And so that's why I didn't I didn't keep watching it. I may I may give it another try sometime. But uh, yeah, it just doesn't doesn't really seem like it has much relationship to the movie. Just doing a little bit of cursory research as we speak, it is actually based on a spec script for something else called Splinter, which never was made. But then it was uh, it was it went into the the offices of the company that produced the original Twelve Monkeys, the movie. Uh, and they wanted to, they wanted to create a TV series, so they decided to port this in and call it Twelve Monkeys and rejig it. So absolutely, that that's that explains a lot, <laughs> doesn't it? Really. As I was watching Legion, I was reminded of the Twelve Monkeys TV show, and I guess it was because of the um, that Legion is quote unquote crazy that he has these multiple personalities, and the whole idea of him being in this institution at uh, at least throughout a lot of the first season of Legion. I haven't watched the second season yet. So it's like the the idea of the female character in Legion might be part of his mind. And then you watch, uh, I was watching 12 Monkeys and I was like, oh yeah, well, Jeffrey Goins might be in his mind. And, you know, that comes through a lot better, I think, in 12 Monkeys, the movie, because of all of those questions, you know, all of those ambiguities that we've brought up time and again, where it's like, yeah, Cole sees the stuffed bear in 1996. Is that what informed his quote-unquote fantasy of going out in uh, philadelphia in the future so those kind of things like what what is actually happening here and then you get those moments where you wonder to yourself okay is this really a fantasy or not like the end of the film where we have that moment of david morse on the plane and then the female scientist there who says that she's in insurance and that it's it's funny to hear that Gilliam was not keen on having that scene. Like he refused, he was trying to not even shoot that scene at all. And instead he came up with this elaborate double crane shot for the end of the film with uh, them craning down on Cole in that parking lot with all of those cars, the, the young Cole, I should say. And he's trying to get out of the, of the one by shooting the other and trying to make that not happen and yada, 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 just playing all these weird games. Terry Gilliam, it doesn't necessarily sound like he's the easiest person to work with at all times. Like there was even during that uh, documentary that's on the Blu-ray called uh, The Hamster Factor, there's a moment where they're like, yeah, we didn't point the cameras over here, but right now Terry is ranting and raving basically and saying that he's not, he's going to leave the film. So it's like, yeah, okay. The, the, he, he, he's an artist and he acts that way a lot of times. So it's like, I'll cut him some slack, but at the same time, I can see why he's had some issues over the years so uh, but yeah that uh he just did not want to have that that ending scene on the plane but for me that's a really crucial thing to have in there and also it's really nice to see the scientist the the lead woman scientist out of her context and now having possibly traveled back in time the first time i saw it 
uh, I, I of course recognized her as, oh, she's the scientist. And the, but the first time I saw it, I was under the impression that she had not time traveled, but that this was, I mean, it, it doesn't make sense that she wouldn't have aged, you know, 30 years. Uh, but I thought, oh, look, she was from Philadelphia too, or she was just, you know, she happened to be on that plane as, as well. Subsequent viewings, I think, oh, of course she came, she came back. She was sent from the, uh, from the future there. But, uh, yeah, at first I just thought, oh, that's an interesting little, uh, coincidence. That was my, my impression. <laughs> I guess it was that her line of being an insurance is the one thing that I said, oh, okay, she was there just in case the other thing fell through. But then I'm just like, well, what what is she going to do about it? You know, is she going to take out David Morse when he gets off the plane in the next stop so that they've just released the plague in the one place on Earth and the rest of Earth will be okay or not? It's funny, when they're talking about all of the different stops that he's going on with the plane, I immediately, now watching it, I immediately thought of the end of another monkey-related thing, the the um, new Planet of the Apes, not the Mark Wahlberg one, but the James Franco one, and thinking of the airline pilot going from stop to stop to stop and the way that the plague spreads across there with that. I think there's even an animation at the end of Planet of the Apes. So it's like, oh, okay. So uh, I keep thinking of that and maybe she's able to stop that that next dot, that next uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark dot where we just like, okay. Or also, he's been exposed to the plague, so I imagine that everyone on that plane is a carrier and will all die within a certain amount of time. Living underground in the future, are they immune to the virus, or are they, or did they just escape it somehow? I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, he he has to get all suited up and coated in plastic to go to the surface to avoid contamination. But we're never really explained how they get down and down to the uh, underneath. Of course, I like the ambiguity of that—that that we don't know what the story is. I imagine that they somehow escaped it, but. Yeah, it seems like living underground wouldn't be that much of an escape from uh, an airborne plague. That's interesting. Actually, that's another uh, another callback to Blade Runner for me, is that they're both movies about human humanity leaving the surface of the Earth. And Blade Runner, only the people who can't afford to get off-world are left there. You know, only the, the kind of the sick and the poor and, uh, and 12 Monkeys humanity isn't on the surface of the earth at all. They're down underneath. And they even address that in Le Jeté, the scientist who talks to who ends up being the James Cole character says, space is out of the question. We have to go back to the past to be able to get resources to the present and to the future. And it's like, oh, okay, that's nice that they actually did think about that, but it's not possible for them in, what, 1962 when Le Jeté takes place. And the difference, too, between a, a nuclear holocaust and a, uh, a viral apocalypse, slightly different objectives and, and problems with, uh, with the surface of the Earth there, I think. The interesting thing, and this goes back to the whether or not you know, Cole actually did time travel, but in, in a way, I think the fact that the future that we see is, is so strange and is so eccentric and steampunky and, and, and odd and, and old fashioned is another indication that maybe only some sort of mentally ill mind 
could have possibly come up with this and that maybe maybe there is no future maybe the whole the whole thing is in his head and everything and that when he dies he dies and you know do you know what i mean and that there are this future doesn't even exist to to travel back into so it's it, I like that fact that if they had, we talked earlier, you know, about the the, the way people quite often portray the future. But if they had portrayed that that future that we're used to seeing, would it have helped that ambiguity? I, I prefer. I, I actually like to think that there is no time travel in a way. <laughs> Which I love time travel movies. I kind of want to believe that this was all in his head. That's unusual. <laughs> this might be a little bit of a stretch, but talking about the plague. I mean, the plague is a pretty big part of Monty Python and the Holy Grail as well. I mean, the whole idea of the bring out your dead scene is all about the plague <laughs> as well. And it's been a long time since I've seen Jabberwocky, which was uh, one of the not 100% Python films. So it had a lot of Python people in it that Gilliam directed early in his career. I just remember, and maybe I need to go back and rewatch this, but I just remember it being really gross. And just like, I had a hard time as a kid watching that movie because I found it kind of scary, but more gross than anything. And I I don't know, have either of you guys revisited Jabberwocking in the last 10 years? No. I just watched it last month for this. Yeah, for preparing for this. And I was, yeah, I was struck by... Uh, <laughs> I was I was struck by I thought that um you know Terry Gilliam seems to always have sort of a Gilliam surrogate in his uh movies uh someone that I'm not sure what I'm basing this on uh but I I just feel like they're a stand-in for him and I feel like the uh, basket maker father of Michael Palin and Jabberwocky is is a Gilliam's stand-in in that movie and B maybe that scene is the quintessential Gilliam scene that he keeps like that theme of this guy just wants to make quality baskets and his son's like, no, we can make profit if we do, if we do it cheaper and uh, you know, not to last as much uh, we can make money because we can make a bunch more of these faster and sell them to people who don't need these to last for a long time. And the guy's just like, no, I just want to make, I just want to make a good basket, you know, fuck off with your, with your capitalism. And, and I just, <laughs> I'm all about the craft. And, uh, yeah, I, I felt like, Oh, that is very much, that seems to be, I mean, behind the scenes and, and also the themes of the movies, uh, the, the Terry Gilliam, uh, story. <laughs> you know, it seems like maybe he would be part of an, uh, anarcho syndicate, uh, <laughs> a narco syndicalist commune. Don't get us started. I'd say I, I would just quote that for a whole hour and a half. Yeah, uh, Gilliam's movies really have very interesting themes as you go through them in the way that, yeah, we were talking about how he was kind of a quote-unquote director for hire on this, but made this his own thing, and it fits really well into his filmography. And I, he's a little uneven for me. Like, I did go see The Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, and I know that he was under a really weird constraint with that movie by having Heath Ledger die while that movie was being made. It's interesting. I think the most interesting part of the movie is the way that he recovered from that and cast the different people in the one role, kind of almost like a Todd Solens thing where we go from person to person, or I guess more of a, um, uh, what would it be more of a uh, Louis Bunuel thing where we cast the same character with different actors, but it's not like I, 
immediately glom onto what's the next Terry Gilliam film. Like I still, and it could be one of those things where it's like, I kind of want to savor them. There are some filmmakers where it's just like, no, 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 I want to leave that for a little bit later. And like, you know, it's like, come home, turn down the lights, light the candles and watch the latest blah, blah, blah film, you know, like, no, I want to save that for a special occasion. So I still haven't seen like Tideland. But then I think other than that, I think I've seen everything that he has done over the years, especially things like Time Bandits. I mean, Time Bandits was on HBO, I don't know how many times when I was a kid. So I've seen Time Bandits more times than I can probably count. Adventures of Baron Munchausen, not so much. But of course, we were about to do, uh, Tony was, you know, I've seen Monty Python and the Holy Grail more times than you can shake a stick at and Life of Brian, of course. So, yeah, he's got a lot of stuff that I've seen many, many times, but then a few films that I've not seen at all. And then a few films I've only seen once. He's such an iconic director. He's got such a recognizable style and energy that uh, it surprised me when when I was first thinking about it for the podcast. I was trying to think of, well, who's who's ripping him off? Who's you know who's doing that Terry Gilliam thing? And I actually I didn't have anybody come to mind until I started rewatching the films and I put on Jabberwocky and that first attack. It was like, oh, well, that's totally where Sam Raimi got the Evil Dead attack from, and and the Time Bandits. I thought, oh, well, that's like the end of Tim Burton's Beetlejuice and it's like the beginning of Julie Taymor's Titus and you know other directors started to come to mind Matteo Garone who did Tales of Tale of Tales you know it looked exactly like a Baron Munchausen sort of aesthetic and and Baz Luhrmann's got that sort of frenetic energy to his stuff that I think of of Gilliam as having and of course Guillermo del Toro recently said you know, we all owe everything to Terry Gilliam. That's that's where this comes from. So it's interesting that I couldn't think of couldn't think of it before, though. You, you're absolutely right about those inspirations, but nobody quite could. Do, I mean, a lot of filmmakers, you know, they you can feel that they are almost copying a director, you know. But no, nobody can quite copy Gilliam because he's so unique and interesting and and bizarre. It's, he's almost indefinable in, in terms of being able to capture just the way he shoots things and the way he writes things and the approach he takes and that that, that production design that he puts in. And like like I talked about earlier, you know, the way he'll fashion find locations that are just completely uh, obscure or strange and just do all these different things. And he is genuinely a complete one-off. And that that's why it's even though he doesn't do films all the time, it is exciting. I mean. I think we're all excited to see the man who killed Don Quixote finally, <laughs> because it is one of those things where it's going to be even that film will never match up really to what people have been hoping for, probably even what he's been hoping for. But it's exciting to think we've got that coming. And so he's they're always quite an you know experience when you get to a Gilliam film. It's nice that he comes from this background of animation, too. I think that that helped free his mind a little bit more, that he could do whatever he wanted, that he had this completely open ability. And yes, I know his animation style, it was informed by other things, but it really allowed him to do this stuff. And then working with these super talented guys that were in Monty Python as both an actor and then as a director. And then also, I don't know if he necessarily wrote stuff, but him taking care of all the animation sequences and kind of moving from one skit to another, they were great 
transitional pieces yeah it in kind of gave them their look you know we we think of Monty Python we think of the big foot you know coming down and squashing the logo it's like yeah he he was the big foot as it were you know he was he wasn't like sergeant hulka the big toe he was the big foot so in that he helped take over the the visual style when it came to making the movies i think was a really nice thing and that he he kept that freedom of the animation going forward when he was able to make live action films so i think that's one of the reasons why they have that crazy energy Jedediah, what is the latest with you, sir? Uh, you know, every time I come on this show, I announce something that uh, ends up not not happening. Uh, <laughs> last time it was a podcast that I actually recorded several episodes of and then lost in a computer crash and uh, never never recovered. And uh, so this time, I'm not going to say what the big stuff I'm working on is. I will say if you're if uh, you can find short stories uh, in various books and and you can buy my novel Peckerwood, which may or may not uh, be a movie soon. So, um, mm. yeah, very, uh, very excited about the uh, possibilities, possibilities there. So, uh, and I write about crime fiction and films at uh, the, my blog, Hard Boiled Wonderland. And how about you, Tony? What's going on in your world? Nothing that cool, I'll be honest, but uh, a couple of things I'll uh, promote while I'm here. Firstly, my uh, X-Files podcast, uh, The X-Cast um, which you can find on on Twitter at the X underscore cast or on Facebook. We've got a group, the X cast basement and it's uh, a pod, regular podcast all about the X files, obviously. Um, and we're about to cover the third season and go back into that. Um, if you want any entertainment news and articles and things like that, you can check out my website, uh, www.setthetape.com, which is a UK website, but it covers all kinds of pop culture um, from across the world. And I've got my own blog, uh, cultural conversation www.theculturalconversation.com um, which is where I post about uh, movies and TV shows and uh, and things I'm watching and uh, I'm also working on a book which will be out next year hopefully all about pop culture and entertainment and things like that hopefully that will happen um, <laughs> I think it will so uh, <laughs> lots going on lots going on well thank you guys for being on the show and thanks to everybody for listening please head on over to the website projection-booth.com you can find out more about today's episode you can also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and a Patreon where you can make a donation to the show donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.